Welcome to the With Faith in Mind podcast. I'm John Terrell, today's host and executive director of Upper House and the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. Today, we're exploring the history and future impact of lay church education in America. We're gonna talk about its earliest origins and its developments over the centuries. It's part of our series on Christian education at the crossroads. In this episode, we welcome Doug Strong to the podcast. It's great to be here, John, and uh, fun to be able to talk about this topic. It, it is fun, and I am delighted to be able to do this with you. Let me uh, share a little bit about Doug. Of course, we'll have all of his details in our show notes, and uh, he has a new book out too, uh, and we'll, we're going to talk about that today, but it'll also be in the, the show notes as well. Well, Doug, we're excited to have you here. Dr. Doug Strong is the Paul T. Walls Professor of Wesleyan Studies and Professor of the History of Christianity at Seattle Pacific School of Theology. Doug's field of study is American religious history, particularly the history of 19th century revivalism, social reform, and the Wesleyan holiness movement in America. Doug is an ordained clergyman in the United Methodist Church, He's a former pastor, past president of the Wesleyan Theological Society, a former dean of Seattle Pacific's School of Theology, and associate dean at Wesley Theological Seminary. He's also been involved in seminary education around the world, including Russia and Korea and probably lots of other countries uh, I don't know about, but I know he has traveled extensively. Doug and I are long-term friends. Uh, We worked together at Seattle Pacific University for a number of years. And he actually officiated my wedding. And so far, things are going swimmingly. So, (laughs) Doug, we are forever grateful for um, you being a part of that special day. He's married to Cindy. Uh, Cindy and Doug have two adult sons and one fantastic daughter-in-law. He loves the outdoors. And I am thrilled to have Doug here as my guest. Well, thanks, John. And it's great to be able to talk about um, lay education which uh, in the Christian church has a tradition back to the beginning. It so it'll be, it'll be great to, to, to explore that. It does, it does. And I, and I can't think of anybody better to explore that with. But before we get into the details, Doug, I just want to ask you a little bit about your personal interest in American religious history. Um, where did it begin? And how did you develop your passion for your um, particular areas of specialty? Yeah. Well, that's a great question. Um, (laughs) My love for history, and especially uh, Christian history, comes from my grandfather. Uh, My uh, grandfather was a layman uh, uh, in a Baptist church in upstate New York, but he was really a raconteur. He was a a storyteller uh, par excellence, and he uh, regaled stories of the past. And because he was born in 1890, his stories about the the uh, his past, which were his parents and grandparents, put put his stories way back into the 19th century. And I realized uh, growing up that I loved telling those, hearing those stories, and then telling those stories. And I wanted to learn more about them. And that became my love for the 19th century, which is what I study today. Um, but also, it's so formative as a Christian. So my grandfather was also a strong believer, a prayerful man, and he linked all of these stories to his faith. And I realized that that good Christian history is just storytelling, storytelling about who we've been and how God has been faithful over all the years. And that's uh, that's how I developed my 
my interest in especially the 19th century. Also, it's a time, the 19th century was a time when um, Christians, in, at least in the U.S., were really highly involved in changing society for the better. And that uh, is something that I think is still relevant for us today. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, you're, you're talking about history and storytelling, and I have never laughed harder um, than when we spent a Thanksgiving with you and your son, Nate, <laughs> talked, <laughs> talked at, at length about um, your trips, dragging him all over the countryside to see um, everything that John Wesley at one point touched. <laughs> yeah, obscure places, <laughs> believe me. Yeah. So we won't go there today, but um, that was that was quite a story um, by Nate, I have to say. Yeah. Okay, um, so that that makes a lot of sense. Um, we're going to have fun today. Um, I, I want when I think about Christian education, I think about Sunday school, um, and I'd like to know. Uh, I'm curious to know when it began. When did the movement in America began, and 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 how? you know, what are its earliest origins and how did it find its way here? Yeah. And maybe that's well, not the very beginning. Maybe there's something. That well, I, well, of course, lay education isn't, uh, is, starts from Paul yes, yeah, <laughs> or, yeah, okay. or, 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 or prior to that, all yes. the apostles. Um, and certainly all throughout Christian history, uh, we've had lay Christian education. However, um, after the rise of the, of modernity uh, in the, really the 16th, 17th century, let's say, there was really an interest in helping uh, the average Christian person to have, especially as people were becoming more literate, how do we learn um, to read the Bible for ourselves? This is a Protestant question uh, because prior to the, uh, well, with, with the development of Protestantism, you have a desire that every person should be able to mm -hmm. access the scriptures themselves. Well, that means you need to be literate and you have to be able to read it and understand it and for yourself. Um, this, this arises in the modern period. Uh, and I'd like to, before we get to the Sunday school, yeah. I'd like to actually uh, talk about um, a, a wonderful person whose name was Philip Spainer, who was the founder of pietism, which is a German uh, spiritual renewal movement um, um, in the 17th century. And so in 1675, Spainer wrote this book called Pia Desideria, which means pious desires. And it was his hopes for a church that would be renewed and spiritually vibrant. But he knew that that would only take place if people were actually trained in Christian education so that they knew the content mm. of the scriptures and they knew how to articulate their theology. And so this is what he wrote in 1675. He said, if persons are to be called into ministry, so this is for pastors, but also lay ministry, they must be trained at our schools and university. May God graciously grant that the schools would be recognized by the outward life of the students to be workshops of the Holy Spirit. And I love that. Uh, yeah. In other words, the actual training ground, where, where we're doing the training, should be a workshop of the Holy Spirit. Well, of course, he's using the analogy or the metaphor of a medieval workshop, which was on its way out uh, when he was writing in 1675. But he liked the idea because in a workshop, you have apprentices and you have journeymen and women working under a master to develop a craft. Well, what's the craft in this case? Well, the craft is knowing about our faith, 
It's about uh, our being able to articulate our faith in, in a well in a well-grounded way. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, what if we did that as a his analogy is saying if there's a workshop that we're all apprentices uh, in the workshop under the mastership of the Holy Spirit. The the Holy Spirit is the master, if you will, the the, the lead of the workshop. And I love that analogy. And um, and that I think became useful in German Protestantism and then bled into other forms that came into the America eventually. Yeah. And this is the actual title of your new book. Is that correct? And I'm assuming, so so that's where the story starts in the book. Yeah. So I have this book that takes that story uh, of Spainers and builds on it that actually Christian education at its best should be a place of a, a workshop of the Holy Spirit where all of us are apprentices where we're all working together because a workshop, you uh, interestingly, when you made a craft in the workshop, you didn't put your name on it. It was the it was the name of the of the workshop of the yeah. of the lead master. So <laughs> if we're if the Holy Spirit's our master, then the craft we're working on, the theology we're de- articulating, is going to have the Holy Spirit's name on it <laughs> and Holy Spirit's imprint. And uh, and so we're working together collaboratively in this workshop. Uh, as apprentices, and we're working as journeymen and journeywomen with kind of a daily practice, uh, practices, spiritual practices, and we're working um, f- to make a masterpiece because the 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 work in order to become a master, uh, you had to pr- produce a masterpiece, and the masterpiece is the very best of the craft that you can develop. So. Where it's it's not it's a good thing I would say for Christians to try to do their very best um, at thinking and writing and articulating yeah. uh, what they believe. So, um, sixteen seventy five, um, mm-hmm. a really important date. Where does the story go from there? I don't know if you want to if right. to the Sunday School movement or or there's important. Well, yeah. Us. So then, um, this was Pietism that I talked mm-hmm. about, which had its influence uh, not only in Germany but in England and the whole English speaking world as well. And uh, a lot of groups that we know of today, some may be familiar, for example, with the Moravians. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were a Pietist group. Even the Methodists had an influence from the from the Pietists uh, and many other uh, groups. And so England was very highly influenced by it. But if we go up into the 18th century, so the 1700s, uh, this is a time of the Industrial Revolution in England. And we have huge numbers of people, of English people, now working in industrial settings, either mines or factories. And they're displaced. Often they've moved from rural agrarian areas into cities or to mining towns. And they're displaced from their family ties. And so there's huge amounts of poverty. Uh, the infrastructure that we now take for granted in, in, uh, developing wor- in the developing world, like sanitation and uh, clean water and all that stuff, none of that was developed. And so they're, they're really bad uh, living conditions, uh, difficult situation. And so you have masses of people um, that are struggling struggling emotionally, physically, uh, financially, uh, wages are low. Uh, and so what to do with children in particular? And 
uh, most people were working six days a week with one day off, which was Sunday. And so, but most people honestly were not going to church on Sunday. They were idle. Well, the adults were probably desperately trying to rest up after six days of working. Right, right. Um, but the children were kind of uh, often just uh, running around. <laughs> and there was a, a concern about that. And so in 1790, Robert Rakes, uh, a British uh, evangelical, uh, saw the need and said, we need to educate uh, these young people. There were no public school systems right. at that time. And so uh, the elite, uh, the children of elite uh, folks were going to private school, but there was nothing for the average uh, middle or lower class young people. And so he said, let's provide some education, rudimentary education, but being able to read, write, uh, basic mathematics, and do that in a setting on Sunday after ch after church, so Sunday schools typically in those days were having had happened in the afternoon or the evening on Sunday mm -hmm. for children. So it gave them something to do, so they wouldn't be getting into trouble. But it also provided them with this uh, basic education, a basic literacy, so that they could read this and the, and the basic uh, text that they were using, of course, was the Bible, uh, so that they would learn uh, how to read, but also what to read, what the content was. And this began the beginning of Sunday schools, or actually what were originally called first day schools. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so this was uh, be, took on very rapidly in the 17, what did I say? I think I said 1790. It was actually 1780s in Britain, and then came to the U.S. in 1790s. So uh, it was first in Britain for about a decade when then the idea came over to the U.S. Yeah, and I want to trace that um that thread over to the United States. But this is also a time of significant social reform as well. So there are all kinds of, uh, I don't know if they would have referred to them at that point as philanthropic efforts. Maybe they, they would have, but major, even some, I think, philanthropic efforts that continue today start around this time frame. Is that correct? Yeah. So all of what I'm describing was part of what has often been termed the benevolent empire. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it was a, it was a, a collection of parachurch organizations, really many, many, many parachurch organizations. They weren't tied. Well, the denominations also were doing this, but in addition to what denominations were doing, there were these uh, interdenominational organizations set up to help out with reform. Uh, and so, one, some of them were, and the, this was in Britain and the U.S. And some of them were to, for example, try to start public education. Uh, that's where we got our public schools from right, was right. the this movement or to reform prisons or to um, uh, deal with issues of poverty or to to move against slavery the American anti-slavery society or uh, provide Bibles so the American Bible Society which is still exists came out of this period 1816 yeah. was the American Bible Society uh, and the one of the other organizations in this whole benevolent empire that is grouping of parachurch organizations was the American Sunday School Union. And that was established in 1824. And it was, uh, an, again, it was an interdenominational, was not tied to any one denomination, but many, many churches supported it. 
uh, effort to try to provide these Sunday schools uh, or first day schools yeah. in in congregations. Uh, and then sometimes they weren't even in, they, they were uh, ecumenical and in a community. Yeah. From a historian, I can I can hear one of the seaplanes. <laughs> from a, from a historical perspective, um, Doug, as you know, in in the in the parlance, the language of historians, how do you think of how, how do you divide the epics? Do you do you talk about you know when it comes to lay education, uh, pre-industrial, post-industrial? Do you talk about it in the context of centuries? Um, how, what kind of language do you use? I, I'm particularly interested as we continue to progress in our conversation, just to understand the nomenclature that is typical for people that um, specialize in, in Christian lay education. Yeah. So we really do have differing types of, we've always had education <laughs> and there's people, there's always training necessary for uh, both leadership in churches and for laity. But it takes different forms. And uh, certainly in the early church, uh, it tended to be uh, catechetical schools that mm -hmm. were um, uh, under the direction of the local bishop. Uh, then in the more medieval period, it shifts to monastic education. Actually, to be frank there, most of the education was in monasteries or nunneries, and most lay people did not receive very much mm -hmm. education mm -hmm. other than whatever they received uh, from their local parish, uh, which, by the way, is why we have such great stained glass windows in, in medieval cathedrals, mm -hmm. right? Because it was for people who were illiterate, this was a way for them to be able to learn the biblical stories or to know something about their faith. Uh, and even statuary, right? It was a way to, to, to and, and paintings, uh, Renaissance paintings. All this was a way for to be educational. Uh, but then what I'm what I was describing with Spainer and the Pietists in this this there's a whole new development in the modern period. Mm -hmm. And that has to do with the rise of Protestantism, this emphasis on literacy within all Protestant countries, and then uh, how to deal with that in conjunction with the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. Uh, and so you have a combination of factors in the modern period which is true right up, I mean, if, if you date modernity, which I do, from about 1675 up through probably the mid-20th century, then you see these, a continuity of similar types of educational efforts through that whole period. Very good. And, and so at what point do we start to see denominational differences, particular um, uh, sub-institutions that are, are focused on educating? Are there rural-urban um, delineations that begin to emerge, um, geographic areas of the country? Yeah. What are some of the, so, yeah, some of the, the, the nuances that begin to spin out of this broader effort to educate and to bring literacy? So along with this interdenominational work in the, of the American Sunday School Union, each of the denominations eventually, every, every major Protestant denomination, and eventually even Catholics, uh, are all involved in lay education. Um, and, and they all develop their own Sunday school programs, um, without exception. I mean, every single Sunday school became such an established institution, if you will, that you did not have a church without a Sunday school uh, mm -hmm. in, 
in the United States, and with 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 very few exceptions. Uh, it was expected that you would develop a Sunday school program. And so that was both denominational, as I said, both denominational and interdenominational. The, in fact, the American Sunday School Union sort of falls, it's not as seen as quite as, as important by the 20th century because all the denominations have their own programs by then. Right. Um, now, I would also argue, however, that there's, that's a little bit unfortunate because with the American Sunday School Union being interdenominational, you had people um, learning from each other and from different traditions. Uh, so Methodists, Baptists, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, uh, for example, would be learning together um, when, you're, when you have your own, you know, if the Methodists or Baptists or Presbyterians have their own Sunday school in their church, then you're only learning from your, the folks that you see every week anyhow. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I'm assuming at some point, you know, it, it initially starts in uh, England with children. It jumps uh, the ocean, comes to America. It, it focuses initially on children. When I'm, I'm kind of backpedaling a little bit, but when does it start to open up to adults? When do you start to yeah. see significant movement with adults? Yeah, and I probably should have said this earlier. There was there were always some adults involved because. Um, not only as teachers, but even if you think of the in industrial England and then in the U.S., uh, a lot of the adults didn't know how to read either and were interested in mm-hmm. learning how to read. So there were some, some uh, adults involved all the way along. But it really picks up in the mid-19th century when there's a desire, and this, uh, this will lead us to um, some other developments, mm-hmm. but what happens in the mid mid 19th century is the desire for more and more education. Now, you have to remember that in the 19th century in the US, college education was very uh was was for a very few. Um for there were the Ivy Leagues and then there was then of the development of many more colleges in the 19th century. In fact, the vast majority of our colleges were f- established in the 19th century often by churches and they were an attempt for to offer and to provide more education for their people. Um, but even then, up until really, up until the Second World War, <laughs> uh, college education was for just a small percentage of people. Um, and so what to do? Uh, if, if you believe, as we do, especially as Protestants, that the Bible is is a, a, a resource <laughs> that the Holy Spirit has given to the whole church and that we have the opportunity to read it and interpret it and to glean from it for our own, for the edification that we can receive from the Lord, then it really behooves everybody. Everybody needs to be able to not only just to be able to read it, but to be able to understand it. And then you need some education because, of course, the Biblical text is at least 2,000 to 3,000 years old. And so you've got uh, some explanation. You've got to understand the context. You need to know something about ancient Israel. You need to know about the first century. And all that means you need some learning, some education. And people recognize this. And so there's a greater, and, and very few people are actually able to go to college. And so, so what develops is an interest in lay education that's not collegiate. 
Um, although there's there there's also the growth of collegiate education, especially denominational colleges. Uh, but in addition to that, there's a broader movement for adult Christian education, and that's in the mid 19th century. Then, so it takes us up to something I'm interested in, and I know we've had some conversations about this in the past, and I th- I think uh, you know it the movement I'm going to talk about is is celebrating its 150th anniversary, and that is the Chautauqua Institution yep. and the Chautauqua Movement. I know there are camp meetings and other things that are assemblies of, of um, they're interdenominational in many respects. Um, they bring many people together, multiple, multifaceted goals and objectives. I wonder if you could speak to that movement as well. And and and, yeah. and I'd love to have some conversation about this because Chautauqua was new for me. I didn't know much about it, and um, it played a significant role in um, lay education for many years, um, extending far beyond Chautauqua, New York. Um, circuits developed, and it pushed westward. And these circuits were really active and were um, gathering places um, of high profile and prominence for many decades. Yeah. Well, the Chautauqua movement, and I would call it a movement, uh, not just a a place, it's named after uh, one uh, assembly grounds, which is on Lake Chautauqua in southwestern New York, Mm -hmm. which actually is my home area. And so I grew up knowing about it. But but a whole movement grew up uh, after the original one uh, in New York State. But let me explain how that happened. Yeah. So I, I talked about how there's this desire for adult Christian education, which is happening in some congregations. At the same time, the whole 19th century was a time of camp meetings. And camp meetings were outdoor revivals uh, with multiple preachers and singing and praying and uh, a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of excitement. Uh, by the mid part after the civil war uh some of the energy of camp meetings had dissipated uh although there was a new interest in what were called holiness camp meetings mm-hmm. and the um especially for people seeking a, a, a more sanctifying experience of god but uh what happens is rather than necessarily having a revival service with uh in an outdoor setting uh this man named John Vincent, uh, who was a Methodist preacher, uh, and had the idea that why not combine the enthusiasm and the outdoor experience of a camp meeting with the goal of adult Christian education? Mm-hmm. And so he established at Lake Chautauqua, New York, a camp greeting grounds, really. Uh, with an amphitheater and cottages and uh, all sorts of and originally tents that people put up uh, camping uh, where people would come for a week or two weeks or more in the summer and have educational opportunities. And this was, again, for people mostly who could not go to college, but wanted to. It was the original thing was it was training for Sunday school teachers. That's what Chautauqua was originally intended for, was a training. So you would, if you were a Sunday school teacher, you would go to Chautauqua for the week. Um, They had multiple weeks, but you would pick the week and go 
stay there, have enjoyable time with others that you met and good meals and fun and you could go swimming in the lake. And But meanwhile, you would have a concentrated time of instruction on good pedagogy, how to teach well, what some, and they had a, they had a, and still do actually at Chautauqua, a large um, uh, map of Palestine that's uh, several hundred feet long and it tries to be as accurate as possible, which they would use as a training for the Sunday school teachers to learn about the geography of, of, of the Holy Land. And I mean, just that's, and the whole week would be spent um, engaging in that. Well, this became extremely popular. People loved it and they flocked to Chautauqua. This is, big, this is in the 1870s, 80s, 90s. And so much so that then not only was there the one in New York, but they established Chautauquas all over the country, Chautauqua-like programs. They actually call them Chautauqua. For example, there's still one just outside Boulder, Colorado called Chautauqua, Colorado. And they're, they're, they were in multiple places. And again, uh, there's one in uh, Ohio on Lake Erie called uh, Lakeside Assembly, for example. Yeah, the chances and, are, for, you know, for our listeners, there probably was a Chautauqua near you. If you do a little yeah, bit of histor yeah. historical poking around, you'll find that um, that your city, your region probably hosted a Chautauqua in the early um, 20th century, late 1800s, right. early Yeah, 20th so that's, so that by the, certainly by the early decades of the 20th century, there were Chautauquas all over the country, and this was a and uh, this was a very common, if you will, pastime and learning. It was it was a combination of education and in and leisure uh, that people would have in the summertime. Yeah, and Doug, I want to explore this a little bit more. Um, I, I don't know if you see it as a major milestone, but there were so many interesting things that spun out of Chautauqua, like correspondence coursework, mm -hmm. um, distance education, um, reading groups. I mean, you could attribute book clubs uh, to uh, yeah. literary societies to Chautauqua. Um, so it is a significant force in adult lay education. And not only that, but there was an emphasis on uh, multiple types of learning, what we would now call different learning styles. Right. So there was aesthetic, there would be music training and music, uh, how, to, how to know music better, how to understand it, uh, uh, the visual arts, uh, theatrical productions, um, I mean, all uh, multiple sensory kinds of ways of learning. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Okay, so um, what happens uh, into the first part of the 20th century? Um, you know, take us through the end of modernity, and then yeah. I want to shift to post-modernity, the, the last 75 years. Yeah. And we'll talk about some trends, some, some, some larger movements, and, and I, you know, you've led uh, at a high level, um, you know, as as administrator within seminary education for many years, and I know you have um, perspective about where um, both lay education is moving and also more formal education for um, pastors and others who are equipping others in the faith. Yeah. Well, let me just follow up on Chautauqua a little bit. Um, one of the ironies of the Chautauqua movement is that while it was intended for the common person, <laughs> Chautauqua itself uh, in New York has become uh, very expensive 
and uh, only really able to accommodate people who have quite a quite a lot of means. So it's uh, it's it's kind of moved away from that original purpose. There were also other um, things I'd say after, especially after World War II, lots of shifts. Uh, I think of uh, the rise of television, first radio and then mm-hmm. television. Uh, of course, even many, many, many other forms of media and technology since then. That has really shifted um, uh, so that in-person kind of going away to a place to learn um, uh, is has become less popular, I guess I would say. Uh, people are more desirous of other types of, of learning options. And of course, that's only been accelerated since uh, since the pandemic uh, with uh, you know a- any number of different platforms. Uh, so I think that's uh, one of the trends. Uh, but we also have post-modernity, uh, and this could be a much longer conversation, but uh, the idea that there is a uh, truth that we can gain, uh, which was sort of the presumption in the Chautauqua or Sunday school movements, right? There is, we can get at uh, a common learning is now, I mean, the challenge of postmodernity is that there's multiple types of learning or truths even. And I think that gospel challenges that uh, presumption. But nonetheless, that means that people are finding their um they're, they're, where they're where they're trying to get their information from and their sources are multiform mm-hmm. and not uh, and and there's not necessarily a presumption that we can get at it from one particular source uh, like either a Chautauqua or an interdenominational Sunday school movement. Um, it may be whatever source where we happen to be listening to. So what? So is, that's a challenge. Yeah, and, and so I I want to. You know, I'm going to speak out of my own experience. I uh, I came to to faith uh, in the I guess it would be the early '90s, um, and I remember being very quickly um, introduced to Sunday school. Lots of adult education options. It seemed to me that kind of with the emergence of the mega church, and I don't want to you know, completely attribute it there, but um, Lots, you know, a shift to more conferencing. Um, uh, you know, um, the, the mega church emerges. The the worship experience begins. There, there's the whole seeker seeker friendly movement. Um, it, all of a sudden, you know, it, it it seemed like it happened overnight, but it really didn't. It happened over decades. Yeah, the Sunday schools disappeared. Uh, lay education opportunities dis- disappeared. Seminaries seem to be burgeoning. Uh, and and flourishing, um, but there was uh, some diminishment in being able as a layperson to to learn uh, in on a Sunday in in a more formal kind of classroom experience, and um, and that continued for uh, many years. And I would say just in the last couple years, and this is very anecdotal, um, I have uh, seen more and more churches reintroducing. Some adult education, and I don't know if that's a trend um, or if it's just my own experience. But I wonder if you could speak to the last thirty years or so um, and what has happened with adult education and how the church has approached 
adult education either embraced it or, or not embraced it? Yeah, I actually think it goes back a little further, John, mm-hmm. to the 60s. Okay. And I would say the, the pivot point was around the mid-60s mm. when actually I would argue that that's when, at least in the United States, post-modernity uh, switched to post-modernity mm-hmm. uh, probably in the 60s. Uh, now, it's not, a, it's not, doesn't happen uh, at a moment, but uh, over t- that's kind of the, the the clear pivot point. And what was the and pivot? Then, what was the pivot point, Doug? Is uh, you know, well, I mean, there's so that yeah. that's a we could go on. It, and it on is a about, big about question, that. but but with respect to adult education, what actually? Yeah. Is, so what if you notice the trends? That is, it's the '60s when uh, Sunday schools start to decline. Okay. Uh, they're, the they're 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 complete. They're they're burgeoning uh, Sunday schools up through the 50s, especially, and into the 60s. And then starting in the mid-60s, there's a start of a decline, and it just keeps going and going and going yeah. down Okay. Uh, until many churches don't even have Sunday schools mm-hmm. anymore. Um, and which could, you wouldn't have even imagined in the early 20th century that you wouldn't have a Sunday school. Um, and so what is that you 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 bring up a good question then which is what replaces that how do you how do lay people get educated uh professionals go to seminary well that's fine but that's only going to be for a few uh what about for the ma- majority of people well uh i think that for a number of years and you're right probably in the by the 80s and in the 90s there was kind of a floundering about I would say that in the last 15 to 20 years, there's been this huge resurgence of interest in what we would call discipleship or even the older term catechesis. Mm. How do we learn about the faith? And there have been lots of very fascinating programs. Uh, In my own denomination was one called Disciple Bible Study, which was small groups meeting, uh, small groups of adults meeting and being the leader would be trained, well-trained uh, in how to go through uh, book studies of, of uh, really in a large majority of the, of the scripture. Um, but this was true in many denominations. And also a resurgence of interest in small groups in general. Uh, and I especially see this among millennials and younger who are uh, Gen Z and so forth. These Christians. Now, of course, there are less of them who are going to church, but of those who are, they seem very, very interested in learning about their faith. And in fact, that seems to be the most important thing for them is their often is their weekly small group Mm -hmm. where they're doing uh, individual Bible study together. I mean, they're doing study together uh, scripturally um, and usually other spiritual practices. Uh, and so this is a, I think th- there's clearly a trend in this direction, but it's often on a, um, a small group level uh, rather than in the mass, like a Sunday, large Sunday school program used to be. So I, what, what's lost and gained in that, Doug? I, I'd love to just get your take on it as a, as an educator. Um, I've been a part of small groups, um, you know, home groups. Uh, I've also benefited from more formal Sunday school experiences. From your perspective, 
what's good and what's um, potentially problematic about that that trend, which continues, I'm assuming. Yeah. Well, the the gain I think is that uh, for those who choose to participate in small groups in their congregations or some are outside of congregations, there's a often a high degree of uh, of commitment, uh, a, a real desire to dig deeply, um, and there's a, a sense of strong fellowship, and that that's a, a place of great growth for those who participate. So that I think is the advantage. This the disadvantage maybe is that it's not a church-wide program. Typically, some churches have it, but in most churches, it's not for everybody. It's only those who choose. Unlike Sunday school, which was in the old days was expected, everybody was going to Sunday school, <laughs> not just the kids, but the adults. You would, There was a Sunday school hour, either before or after the worship, and everybody went, or almost everybody. You just expected to. And so there was, a, a, there was an encompassing, all-encompassing kind of educational effort, which I would say is now optional. Mm-hmm. And so that's the, in my opinion, the downside. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think, so I guess what I would say, to summarize, for those who choose to participate, it's a great and uh, helpful and um, really profound experience, but it's not, it's not, not everyone is uh, getting, getting that benefit. Yeah. Um, it, more recent years, and I don't know, you know, how you would, where you would put the marker in, in the, Time frame, but um, is there a trend back to catechesis? I think you did mention that you see a trend back toward that. Are, sun, are churches starting to layer in Sunday school adult education opportunities, or is that just something that is more an- anecdotal experience for me? I think some churches are. Uh, some churches are, well, especially since there are more and more true new believers. Uh, we have you know, the phenomenon now of people who don't, their parents or even grandparents necessarily weren't believers and they're becoming believers, then that, that, that's new, right? <laughs> that didn't used to be the case. And so they really, people do need to learn about the faith. And some churches are doing a very good job of that kind of new believer catechesis. Yeah. Um, and of course, uh, the best example of this is probably the Alpha program, mm-hmm. which most people know about, which is really a catechetical uh, process. It's adult Christian education. Um, and, you know, what Nikki Gumbel's did there in Britain and how it's uh, catapulted throughout the world really now is, been, is, is a, is a yeah. great example of that. Doug, this has been so helpful to um, have you take us through the development of Christian lay education. We want to turn to seminary education in a more formal context. I wonder if you could name some of the broad movements about how pastors, ministers, theologians have been trained over um, the centuries. And maybe just think about the broad movements. Maybe you could give me five or six chapter titles that are indicative of of what took place over history from um, medieval period uh, to present day. Well, uh, so I'm going to go actually a little bit before then okay. and say that we, you know, the whole medieval period was really monastic schools. Right. So the ed- most education for clergy was taking place either in monasteries or in cathedrals. Uh, and then 
And then we have this period um, where pastors were being taught by other pastors. So, um, I mean, that's the old bishop model, uh, teaching yep. uh, those under the under the bishop. And the so we would have uh, a good example would be Jonathan Edwards or others in New England who would mentor uh, mm-hmm. pastors that be. Um, Charles Finney, the famed revivalist, was evangelist, was uh, mentored by George Gale, his uh, yeah. his, his pastor. A, apprenticeship, a almo- pastor. apprenticeship almost out of the trade. Really an apprenticeship right. kind mm-hmm. of system. Yep. yep, yep. And so that was true up and through, the again, the mid-19th century. Then we have the development of seminaries, but where did they come from? <laughs> well, they really came from Germany. Uh, so, and... The beginning of it is not necessarily a good story. So in 1810, the uh, Germany, German government, Prussian government, decided to start a new university called the University of Berlin. And when that happened, the intent was to separate uh, religious education from what they what we would call secular education from other education. And so they had a religion department. But it wasn't to be under any, there was no control allowed from the church. So religion was being taught by the state, basically, by the state university. Mm. Well, that, that, that shift really put the study of religion <laughs> uh, into a real quandary because uh, no longer is it, uh, it's no longer theology that is the study of God, of, of how God. God's, we're not assuming that God is at work, but rather it's religion that is our human attempt to understand something beyond us. And this becomes a, uh, the basis for most American, first German and then American uh, seminary programs. Now, they wouldn't have said that, and they, they, but, and they would have still liked to have been, and they, they did. They were connected to churches usually but um but there was this desire for an academic respectability in seminaries that was really reminiscent of kind of the scholarly division between secular and sacred that had happened in germany mm-hmm. and the classic example of that in the us was the establishment of the university of chicago divinity school in 1895 which really was established to be a non-sectarian, non-church connected um, divinity program, and where you would study the history of religions, plural, and not really uh, assume a faith-based kind of education. So that's the quandary and the struggle that's happening within seminary education, uh, really up until I think into the into the twentieth century. Now. There are exceptions to that, but um, that's kind of so. So, for example, even in our seminary program, the one that I administered, we really had to try to do a deliberate effort. To, it was easy to say that we were going to be academically respectable, that that was a goal, an important goal. Uh, it was more difficult to say, well, we also want to be uh, faithfully uh, committed to the church and the church being um, helping to form our students to be uh, really good pastors uh, of the gospel. 
I think we did that in our case, but um, and other seminaries are trying to do it. But that kind of tension uh, has been a part of seminary education in the U.S. for a long time. Yeah, which is that academic respectability or scholarly excellence is the most important priority. Yeah, and that would take us up to the up to the present moment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, as you think about, I, I mean, I, I don't know the numbers real well. You would know these better, but seminary education largely is on the decline um, just with respect to numbers of students. Uh, that's not true across the board. It may not be true at Seattle Pacific. Um, what, um, what kind of conversation uh, is that prompting um, among um, leaders like you, and how are seminaries responding to some of those challenges? Yeah. Actually, there is a decline in Master of Divinity students, but there's been an upswing in Master of Arts students at seminaries. So actually the enrollment uh, numbers in the Association of Theological Schools is about even hmm. um, over the last- Yeah, I didn't realize that. Few, few years. Yeah. Um, but uh, what, you're, what you're describing, um, Seminaries train people for the church, and the church is overall is declining in the United States. Um, and so as the church declines, there are less people interested in going into seminary. So that, that just represents it. Now, the exception to that is that uh, congregations of color, uh, especially immigrant congregations, are growing in the United States. Mm -hmm. And so the growth area is actually among students of color going to seminaries. And uh, I mean, our seminary is a good example of that. It's it, uh, a few years, a number of years ago, it was majority white students, and now it's a majority students of color. And I think that that's true in many seminaries. Um, and I think the future of the church, of course, uh, globally, is not among Euro Europeans and Americans uh, or white Americans, um, the, 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 the real growth is happening in you know, the global South. So those are the kinds of uh, where we see growth, where we see growth in seminary education as well. Yep. And I think for uh, seminaries, most seminaries are now thinking, in fact, I was just in the conversation about this uh, very recently, most seminaries and theological think tanks in the U.S. are really now saying, how do we include or broaden our scope to global institutions, to uh, places in the developing world as yep. well? Doug, I want to explore with you, um, before we wrap up, um, the connections today with Christian education and the potential for Christian education and social and or spiritual reform. I know that those connections were tight in past centuries. Do you see new possibilities and opportunities for Christian education um, enjoying tight linkage to social and spiritual reform in today's context? Yeah, uh, so that's, that's an area of deep uh, passion for me, right, is that how, to what degree does spirit do spiritual growth, um, our commitment to Christ, uh, engage the social order. And I think, uh, I mean, to put it very simply, <laughs> uh, when we look at the New Testament, when we look at the ministry of Jesus and Paul, there were 
deep ramifications of what the when they when they received the gospel when they lived out the gospel there were changes that happened in them and in the in the world around them mm-hmm. um i think whenever the gospel's being lived out faithfully it's going to make a difference in the people around them even even when we're a minority hopefully people will see a difference um and i think that's true today and uh now the question is we need what are the what are the issues that we um that are of concern and of course there are many um but the one that you know i've spent most of my uh uh academic life and ministry about is racial justice and i am thoroughly convinced that you know this is not something that's that we've uh, that we've solved <laughs> uh I think the last few years in the U.S. have demonstrated that and that there's still a great need for us to work on. And especially as the U.S. becomes a more diverse society, Mm -hmm. right? We know that by 2040 or so, we will no longer be a predominantly white country, Uh, will be uh, many colors. And that's, to me, (laughs) rather than seeing that as ever as a problem, I think that we see that as an amazing opportunity Mm -hmm to be, as Christians, as a witness, uh, potentially, hopefully, to the world and and a way to reach out uh, globally and evangelistically. Now, what that means, though, is what does it mean as we're looking at a changing U.S. society for the church to speak into that? And uh, I do believe that um, we have a huge role, uh, the church does that, mean uh, and educationally to learn more about each other to learn what it means to uh, what does it mean to actually be in uh in diverse settings with other people what does it mean to have worship that uh, reflects the diverse cultures that uh, people that are coming before us uh what does it mean to uh learn how to speak and hear one another interculturally. Uh, those are skills that we can develop. And if we're going to take Revelation seriously, the book of Revelation that in, says that we will be all, that all tribes and peoples and nations will be gathered together, then we have to, I mean, that doesn't happen automatically. <laughs> uh, God does want to enter into that work, but we also have our part to play in how how that happens. So, to answer your question, I think there's, and that's just one example. Yeah. Just racial justice is only mm-hmm, one mm-hmm. of many uh, social issues that I think uh, the gospel speaks to. Yeah. Last question I have for you today. Um, I don't want to let you leave before I ask for a unique take from you as a Methodist uh, trained minister, theologian. Um, how does your Wesleyan um, Methodism um, influence the way you think about education? What's unique uh, about that tradition that, that we ought to know about? And how yeah. can it help us um, take good steps forward? Yeah, great. Well, uh, there's a famous quote of Charles Wesley, John Wesley's brother who wrote so many hymns. He has a famous quote uh, uh, at the dedication of a school in Britain he wrote a poem, uh, which became a hymn, um, and he says this line, Unite the pair so long disjoined, 
knowledge and vital piety. And I think that uh, a Wesleyan approach to education is going to unite knowledge or scholarly excellence, rigor, academic rigor, and vital piety, mm-hmm. the experience mm-hmm. of God, and the uh, and and the um, the way in which God's uh, Holy Spirit is transforming us and changing us and making us new people and new creatures, uh, and that both of those must be held together right and that's that's the that's the both the difficulty but also the excitement of um, a wesleyan approach to higher education any kind of education yeah. is that we're going to try to hold together spiritual um fervor with um academic excellence well and that's and a, so go ahead yeah. that that's uh, a, and so that's that's the combination that that I would try to hold up. Well said, and a good word for us um, here at Upper House and in the broader Christian Studies Center movement. Doug, thank you so much. It is a joy to be with you. Thank you for your good scholarship. Again, um, we'll get the notes out about your new book. People are gonna wanna pick that up. Uh, Just grateful for all you're doing. Thanks for the ways you're leading. Thank you. It's been great to be with you. Thanks for joining us. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your favorite podcast app. Also, be sure to check out our upcoming events on upperhouse.org and our other podcast, Upwards, where we dig deeper into the topics our in-house guests are passionate about. With Faith in Mind is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin, hosted by Dan Hummel and John Terrell. Our executive producer and editor is Jesse Koopman. Please follow us on social media with the handle at Upper House UW.